which you can find on YouTube by searching for Brian Estes, that's E-S-T-E-S, or by searching for Homemade Chicken. It's all one word, H-O-M-E-M-A-D-E-C-H-I-C-K-N. Greetings and welcome back to Bernie 2016. This is an independent podcast established to follow and comment on Bernie Sanders' candidacy for President of the United States and our revolution, the movement he helped inspire. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, PAC, or political organization. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. You can find out more and view or listen to back episodes by going to bernie-2016.com and on that site among some other links you will find the link to my flipboard magazine bernie for president where i am closing in on 16,000 articles on bernie and our revolution you can also support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash unrelated things The Democratic National Convention is over and done with. The Democrats have their nominee. That nominee, unfortunately, is not Bernie Sanders. It is Hillary Clinton as 
was widely expected um, from before the campaign even really started uh, and throughout the campaign Bernie made a an amazing run and definitely showed everybody out there that there is a huge amount of support for his policies and where he stands on the issues unfortunately for all of us and for the country it was not enough to overcome Hillary Clinton and her political machine. The stories that I have for you this episode are from a from you know over the last couple weeks, some from before the convention started, some from during the convention, and then a couple post convention pieces. First up is a piece from The Morning Ledger by Anna Peters. As U.S. presidential elections 2016 continue full speed ahead, new reports reveal that Democratic National Committee Bernie Sanders versus Hillary Clinton primaries heavily favored the former Secretary of State to take the nomination. On Friday, an email trove, 19,252 emails with 891 documents and 175 spreadsheets, was released by Russian hacker Guccifer 2. In the emails, internal communications revealed that party members systematically derailed Sanders' campaign to ensure Clinton would be successful. In response to the new development, Sanders supporters have staged protests during the convention held in Philadelphia. Further, with this evidence, there is legal recourse available to a, to a Miami-based civil litigation firm, Beck and Lee Trial. Lawyers have announced they are orchestrating a class action lawsuit. Jared Beck has explained that based on the Democratic Party bylaws, Article 5, Section 4, the DNC chairperson is expected to remain neutral during the presidential nominating process. Quote, the chairperson shall be responsible for ensuring that the national officers and staff of the Democratic National Committee maintain impartiality and even-handedness during the Democratic Party presidential nominating process reads the article. The lawsuit alleges fraud and collusion between party officials and the Clinton campaign. Beck has revealed that there has been a continuous stream of requests for legal paperwork and signed agreements to continue and signed agreements continue to come in. The firm has also revealed that they are receiving new requests and inquiries by the minute. Anyone who donated and provided financial support to Sanders during his campaign for the Democratic nomination, be it directly or through third-party payment platforms, are eligible to join the lawsuit. According to the lawsuit's Facebook page, interested parties can email dncfraud at jampac.us. People will be considered a class representative and will be part of the suit's participating plaintiffs. In order to start the process, sign the attorney-client agreement and begin preparing your proof of payment donation, as this may be requested of you at a later time. 
There is no joining fee for those who want to join the DNC lawsuit. Joining is not mandatory, but if the suit is successful, people who donated and weren't part of the process will not be eligible to receive incentives and rewards. Sanders received massive support from voters with millions donating to his campaign. He was fueled with over $220 million to continue on during the Bernie Sanders versus Hillary Clinton race. The leaks that have been made available spanned through January 2015 to May 2016. Notable in the vol voluminous release were Democratic staffers who discussed how to deal with ways they can coordinate undercutting Sanders. So there you have it. There is a class action lawsuit underway to sue the DNC for failing to live up to their bylaws and for working against the Bernie Sanders campaign. So if you're interested in that, check that out. And up next, from Byron York. Not only was the DNC working hard against Bernie Sanders, they were certainly taking some steps and uh, raising some significant concern about Bernie's delegates. This is from Byron York and is from the Washington Examiner. High-ranking Democratic National Committee staff debated whether to bar a Bernie Sanders supporter from attending a fundraiser because she had written tweets, quote, throwing shade on party chair Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Tennessee activist Amanda Cruel, that's K-R-U-E-L, had sent, quote, multiple tweets throwing shade on DWS. Alan Reed, Compliance Director for the DNC, noted in a May 19, 2016 email released through the massive WikiLeaks disclosure. Reed added that Cruel was a, quote, staunch Bernie supporter and campaign staffer who had been elected a delegate in Tennessee's party meetings. In tweets last year, Cruel often took aim at Wasserman Schultz. For example, last August, Wasserman Schultz tweeted, quote, Democrats are fighting for progress for all Americans. Cruel responded, quote, The Democrats, we're fighting for progress for all Americans. Now DWS tweets is fighting for progress for Hillary and crew. Cruel donated $50 to the party to attend a June 2 event in Knoxville featuring Wasserman Schultz. Quote, Finance asked us to vet this DWS attendee for her trip to Tennessee. Reed wrote in the May 19 email sent to all, quote, Eileen No below is a sampling of her social media posts. She also donated $50 to the event, which I can refund if she is denied. Below that, Reed included, quote, Amanda Cruel, multiple tweets throwing shade on DWS, staunch Bernie supporter and campaign staffer, was elected delegate for TN2 at the DNCC. Quote, my first reaction is no, responded DNC Chief Financial Officer Brad Marshall. But on further thought, Cruel could turn this back on us and say she was denied attendance by the big bad establishment. Well, mostly because that's exactly what the big bad establishment was considering doing. 
DNC Communications Director Louis Miranda sided with Marshall. Quote, if most others vet, it's hard to see how telling her she can't come and refunding her $50 doesn't turn into a story. It may not be worth the trouble to deny her, and it may be what she's looking for, any excuse to rail against us. Quote, agree with Lewis, added Wasserman Schultz's chief of staff, Tracy Poe, in the, the next day. We need to make sure we don't have an incident with signs, posters, shouting matches. Not a good look either. But there were additional concerns after the discussion on May 21. Yet another DNC official, Finance Chief of Staff Scott Comer, sent a note saying of Cruel, She bought another ticket late last night. We could collect phones at the door. That way they wouldn't film and post any stunts they try to pull. In the end, the DNC allowed Cruel to attend. Sanders supporters protested outside and Cruel joined them until the event began, at which time she went inside. Despite the fears of party officials, Cruel didn't make a scene. Fast forward to today and Cruel has been surprised to see herself discussed at such length in the DNC's internal correspondence. In an email conversation, Cruel told me she had attended another party event last fall at which Wasserman Schultz appeared and there was no problem. Quote, I don't know why they decided to vet me, Cruel told me. My support for the Bernie campaign was not just publicly available information, but common knowledge to anyone in the area. Though my tweets to, D tweets to DWS over the fall were a bit vitriolic, they died down as I got busier working on the campaign. When Cruel learned that Wasserman Schultz was coming to Knoxville June 2, she wanted to attend. Quote, not in going to protest, but really going as an act of principle. She noted that while Sanders was running as a Democrat, quote, the entire DNC appeared to back Clinton, and she, quote, wanted to show that there were people active in the party who supported Bernie, but were also willing to be civil and friendly with people in the party who supported HRC. Cruel conceded that she not only took part in, but helped organize the protest outside, but told me that when she entered the event itself, quote, I was perfectly friendly and polite, and I didn't really meet any animosity. Cruel even got a chance to talk to Wasserman Schultz. The conversation was mostly small talk, but Cruel noticed that Wasserman Schultz seemed worried about a Bernieite challenger in her Florida congressional district. Quote, I kind of felt sorry for her, Cruel told me. I thought I was seeing a more human side of her. She had always been this figurehead in the minds of Bernie supporters, and here she was expressing insecurity and fear. Before I met her, she'd always been this looming figure, this tyrant who would do anything to get her way and keep her power. But I was really surprised to see that she was short, about my height, five foot zero. Cruel told me that the event, which Cruel told me she left the event with a good feeling and was happy to have a picture with the chairwoman. Now, seeing the photo in the light of the WikiLeaks disclosure, Cruel feels differently. Looking at that picture with what I know now, I get the feeling that they told her she had to be nice to me, and I think her face clearly shows that she did not find that easy. In the back, the guy with the man bun is Ray, the security guy. I joked after the event that he seemed to have been assigned to me, as he was never far from me. That joke may have been a fact. So a little detail, a little color about some of the 
normally behind the scenes uh, bits and pieces of DNC and uh, political back and forth, really trying to manage the image and being concerned about what, in this case, a Bernie supporter uh, might do in this particular fundraising event. And up next from the Inquisitor.com by Caitlin Johnstone. Quote, I've been seeing the word suggest in the headlines on U.S. media, including New York Times, ABC News, Newsmax, etc. This leaves the emails open to interpretation. They aren't. They quite clearly showed a large degree of contempt and bias on the part of the DNC. And this still hasn't been fully acknowledged by a lot of mainstream media. This is absolutely true. It would take up all this article space to list all the media outlets sporting headlines about the emails containing the ambiguous words suggests and appears to. But here are a few of them. From the New York Times, released emails suggest the DNC derided the Sanders campaign. Excuse me? Suggest? The DNC derided the Sanders campaign? It's quite clear from the NYT, from the New York Times' own article that this, pres, this is precisely what happened. From DNC communications official Mark Pass, uh, Paustenbach calling Sanders' campaign a mess, to the notorious Debbie Wasserman Schultz saying Sanders, quote, isn't going to be president, something that was unknowable at that time. It is indisputably obvious that the sad derision was in fact that the said derision was in fact happening, but the Times opted to paint a nebulous, maybe they did, maybe they didn't picture with its headline. From the Huffington Post, leaked emails suggest DNC was conspiring against Bernie Sanders. No, the emails do not suggest such a conspiracy was happening. They blatantly and unequivocally show DNC officials doing what can only be called conspiring, and the content of the author's own article shows clearly that there was no reason for her to use such a deceptively equivocal title. The article quotes Postenbach suggesting an anti-Bernie narrative that they could spin in which the senator, quote, never had his act together as well as quoting Chief Financial Officer Brad Marshall, suggesting ways in which Sanders' religious beliefs could be manipulated to cast him in a negative light to the public. It also contains a link to a heavy article with links to many more examples of DNC officials scheming and slandering against Sanders via email, consistently referring to themselves and the Hillary campaign as we, while referring to Sanders in the second person. This is important not just in the interest of unbiased journalistic integrity, but more importantly because these same leaked emails also reveal why media outlets would be so keen on biasing their content in order to stay on the DNC's good side. Some particularly chilling emails in the WikiLeaks archive reveal an ominous conversation between Wasserman Schultz and NBC News political director Chuck Todd, in which the DNC chair authoritatively told him that the negative coverage of her by Morning Joe's Mika Brzezinski must stop. 
that Brzezinski's unfavorable statements about the DNC chair are, quote, the last straw, and that she, quote, needs to apologize. In other words, the head of the DNC called upon the boss of one of the only pundits on mainstream media to ever declare openly, to ever dare openly criticize the DNC's bias and instructed him to make her stop. That's right, just a casual conversation between the media and a powerful political organization about censoring the news. If you're still wondering if this should freak you out, the answer is yes. As if that wasn't bad enough, the emails also show a correspondence between Politico reporter Kenneth Vogel, in which the writer sent an article to DNC officials in late April for their approval, before his own editors even read it. Just to be clear, it is not standard practice for journalists to get the authorization of the politicians they are writing about before publishing. The subject of the emails reads, quote, per agreement, any thoughts appreciated. What was that agreement and how many more like it exist? Who knows? If it wasn't already obvious to everyone that American politicians have the news media wrapped around their fingers, it should be now. The fact that the evidence of this is still being obfuscated by that same news media by deliberate understatement and ambiguity is just more icing on the cake. So as we know and as we have seen, Hillary Clinton is the nominee of the Democratic Party. Um, it has caused or led to a whole lot of uh, hand-wringing and gnashing of teeth in the political revolution um, among supporters of Bernie and where to go, where to, where to lend their support, what to do as far as electoral politics go for the remainder of this cycle. Well, setting aside all of the local, regional, and state races that maybe uh, in your area have some absolutely fantastic candidates running that you should support, we do need to think about who the next president will be. And there are a lot of thoughts about where support should go. Everyone is going to make up their own mind about how they move forward um, in the electoral politics for president this November. Um, a great many Bernie supporters um, are going to support Hillary Clinton. Some because they very strongly support what Hillary Clinton stands for even though they did prefer Bernie. Some are going to support Hillary Clinton because they very, very greatly oppose and stand against what Donald Trump stands for. And I understand that feeling. There is a tremendous amount of pressure to fall in line and to support Hillary to prevent a Trump presidency. And some are going to stay home and not go to vote because they cannot support either 
of the major party candidates. And some of us are going to vote third party, and that is exactly where I am headed. Um, I haven't been very strongly in the Democratic camp for a very long time. There have been a few candidates here and there that ran as Democrats that piqued my interest. But overall, the policies of the Democrats have not set them apart and not set them on the right track that really win my support for the direction that they are bringing the country. And that doesn't mean I think they're as bad as the Republicans. Anybody that says Hillary Clinton is as bad as or the same as Donald Trump, in my opinion, they really don't understand what each of those individuals stand for. I think there are significant differences between the, those two candidates. And I think that Hillary Clinton is far better on most issues than Donald Trump. But that doesn't mean I think that Hillary Clinton will take the bold steps that we need to move this country in a new direction. Hillary Clinton is not a progressive, has not been in the past a progressive, even though she has adopted a number of progressive ideas more recently. She has been a centrist, and I would say even on the conservative side of the Democratic Party, um, at, at best you could call her a moderate, but absolutely does not have a history of being a progressive. Um, and she surrounds herself with people from the Clinton presidency, from the Bill Clinton presidency, John Podesta, Terry McAuliffe, a whole host of people that participated in the Clinton presidency will be back in power with Clinton too. They didn't bring us in the right direction then. They're not going to bring us in the right direction now. They support the policies of big business and billionaire class. They will give breadcrumbs as much as they feel necessary to the middle class, very little to the poor, and will say, you have to come along with us because the other side is so bad. You, we cannot risk. We cannot risk that. And I say that's bullshit. You vote for the person you believe in. And, and, and there's a story coming up about voting for somebody because you believe the other, the other major opponent is worse. And I understand that. And I've included a pretty good piece about that. I don't agree personally. I'm not going to throw my vote away by voting for somebody I don't believe in, voting for somebody that I don't think is going to be the right person to move us forward and move us in the direction that we need to go. It's too late for incrementalism. It's too late for incrementalism on climate change. It's too late for incrementalism on 
um, Black Lives Matter and on all minority communities. It's too late for incrementalism on Native American communities. It's too late for incrementalism on trade. It's too late to take to to hold the line. The line is in a bad place. The sexism, the racism, the things that politically and economically control our lives are not benefiting our lives. Holding the line against the Republicans is crappy. It's important. It's important not to move backwards, but it doesn't, it doesn't move us anywhere near we, where we need to be. So in any event, I'm one of the people that supported Bernie and registered as a Democrat because Bernie was running as a Democrat and the Democratic Party doesn't doesn't speak to me. It's not going to take me where I think that we need to go. But all hope is not lost. There are still options out there. There are two notable third-party candidates, and it's interesting to see there's two third parties. Uh, there are certainly a huge number of other parties, and there are a number of other candidates running for president. There's two that have a little bit more notoriety and a little bit more exposure than most. And one of those two is the libertarian candidate. And I don't support many limit libertarian policies. There's some that I would, would be supportive of, but in general, uh, libertarian economic policies are going to drag us in the opposite direction that we need to go in. Um, but the other candidate, the other significant third party candidate that's running is <clears throat> Jill Stein. And she hasn't been nominated yet, but she is the leading contender for the nomination of the green party. And at this point in time, without any doubt whatsoever, she is the one that I will be voting for in November. So a number of Bernie supporters are going in that direction. Why do I feel that's important? Because the Greens and Jill Stein stand for the platform that Bernie ran on, and they always have stood for that platform. They, are, they have better policies than Bernie in certain areas. I think their foreign policy is better than Bernie Sanders' foreign policy. Bernie was not strong enough in opposing this country's international debacles uh, where we just go in and, and run roughshod over other countries. Uh, the Green Party is much better in that regard. So I will, going forward, have much more to say about Jill Stein and about the Green Party than I have up to this point on this podcast. I don't think I'm going to turn into uh, Stein 2016. Um, I don't think that's really necessary at this point. 
I will voice my support for Jill Stein as long as that is the direction that I'm going in. And that doesn't mean I'm abandoning Bernie or even necessarily abandoning Democrats. There are Democrats out there that are truly progressive, that do want to see real change happen and aren't satisfied at all with the status quo, and they are worthy of our support. But this story is about uh, Jill Stein. It is from Nation of Change. It is by Janine Moloff. Bernie broke my heart, but Dr. Jill Stein heals the wound. My one-sided, lurid love affair with Bernie Sanders has come to a screeching halt. The political infatuation I had with Bernie that was strong enough to make me swear off George Clooney is now stored away with old tokens meant to curse former crushes. And because he wholeheartedly, and all because he wholeheartedly endorsed Hillary this week. Now I understand that Bernie told his followers the fight would go to the convention floor as a show of newly grown progressive force. He wants to knock out political bosses, reform the nominating process, and allow voting rights for independents in the primaries. That's right, no Bernie and no nasty aftertaste from Bernie delegates to stop Hillary's coronation. Frankly, envisioning Bernie, his delegates, and fellow protesters barred from the door of the convention with the threat of arrest hovering like hanging chads of yesteryear would have served as a more powerful indictment over corrupt processes. Alas, it was not to be. I can forgive Bernie for being tired and realizing that Hillary has stolen the nomination, but I have difficulty accepting his smiling face standing next to her. The poster child of groveling and political obeisance to Wall Street. I would have been crushed except I had someone even better than Bernie waiting in the wings, namely Green candidate Dr. Jill Stein. I admit that I was attracted by her mantra, which simply states the obvious and most inconvenient truth that, quote, democracy needs a moral compass. It needs our moral values. Jill Stein to the rescue. Dr. Stein, or Jill as she prefers to be called, is the dirty little secret of the political world. A medical doctor by profession and an alumnus of the Harvard Medical School, she is refreshingly humble. Jill was kind enough to consent to an interview on very short campaign stop in St. Louis. We met in a local coffee house, which had also previously served as a refuge for Ferguson protesters. There were no handlers, no entourage, no demands for the questions in advance, and no arrogance. It's easy to see why Jill Stein and the Green Party have been locked out of the press cycle, at least until recently. Her agenda has a corny name, the Power to the People Plan, but the goals are golden in terms of economic, social, political, and climate justice. She blames, quote, both corporate political parties, for the current litany of economic, political, and climate crimes against humanity. 
Her goals are to create deep system change, moving from the greed and exploitation of corporate capitalism to a human-centered economy that puts people, planet, and peace over profit. Key points of her plan feature the following. A Green New Deal, which will, quote, create millions of jobs by transitioning to 100% clean, renewable energy by 2030 and investing in public transit, sustainable agriculture, and conservation. Creation of living wage jobs and advancing workers' rights to form unions and achieve workplace democracy. Create a guarantee of economic human rights, including access to housing, food, water, and utilities. Establish and implement single-payer public health insurance, a.k.a. Medicare for all. Abolish student debt and end student debt servitude. Quote, guarantee tuition-free world-class public education from preschool through university. End high-stakes testing in public school privatization. Create a, quote, just economy by establishing a mandatory $15 an hour federal minimum wage. Break up too big to fail banks and democratize the Federal Reserve. Make Wall Street, big corporations, and the rich pay their fair share of taxes. Create democratically run public banks and utilities. Replace corporate trade agreements with fair trade agreements. Lead the way on global agreement to halt catastrophic climate change and destructive energy extraction, fracking, tar sands, offshore drilling, oil trains, mountaintop removal, and uranium mines. Protect our public lands, water supplies, biological diversity, parks, and pollinators. Label GMOs and put a moratorium on GMOs and pesticides until they are proven safe. Protect the rights of future generations. End police brutality, mass incarceration, and institutional racism within our justice system. Expand women's rights. Protect LGBTQIA people from discrimination. Enforce the Bill of Rights by protecting the right to free speech and protest to be secure from unwarranted search and seizure, as well as other constitutional rights. Terminate unconstitutional surveillance and unwarranted spying. Close Guantanamo and repeal indefinite detention without charge or trial. Repeal the National Defense Authorization Act, which grants any president the power to indefinitely imprison or assassinate American citizens without due process. End persecution of government, corporate, and media whistleblowers. Issue an executive order prohibiting federal agencies from conspiring with local police to infringe upon rights of assembly and protest. Repeal the Patriot Act. Abolish corporate personhood. It doesn't take much imagination to see why the corporate Democrats and their media enablers have made sure that Dr. Jill Stein is invisible. Her voice has been blacked out far worse than Bernie's, yet she perseveres. We started with the largest elephant in the room, namely feminism, and the first woman president. For the past two years, the American public has been barraged with propaganda regarding the historic yet token nature of the 2016 presidential race. 
This propaganda has served as a prelude to what can only be called Hillary Clinton's coronation. Feminist groups have conveniently omitted any news of the other woman in the presidential race, namely Dr. Jill Stein of the Green Party. And in the interview, here's uh, what Jill Stein had to say when she was asked about Hillary Clinton and her place as the first woman nominee of the Democratic Party. Quote, We are an inconvenient truth for Hillary Clinton, who pretends to be the friend of women, but as you said, really is a friend of wealthy women whose policies are very much at odds with what women need. This is a woman who sat on the board of Walmart, which is really sort of the poster, poster child of the predatory economy. Hillary Clinton led the charge in Haiti, where impoverished workers had just gotten a raise to 60 cents an hour, and Hillary Clinton led the charge to push it back down to 40 cents an hour, a full third of their wages wiped out. Not a friend of everyday people. How can, how can you claim to be a feminist when you are rushing into wars that are bombing other people's kids, hospitals, and schools and destroying them? We should not be rushing to war as our first impulse. The wars where Hillary has rushed in have been absolutely an abomination for which there is no excuse. In particular, Libya, where she led the charge. As scary as Trump talks... Hillary has a scary record of warmongering and neoliberalism. And in Libya in particular, just in the last week, we have started bombing because of the stronghold that ISIS has developed there. One of their strongest uh, areas of power in the Middle East. And that is largely because we murdered Muammar Gaddafi and destroyed what was a struggling government there that was under under siege by fighters that were trying to topple it. And I don't have a dog in that fight. I don't know all of the issues on the ground and where those anti-government forces had valid points that they were fighting for their lives to move forward uh, and where they were merely fighting to seize the opportunity to gain a powerful stronghold, which is exactly what ended up after we intervened. And this um, interview goes on. So if you want to check out this interview, um, once again, that was in Nation of Change by Janine Moloff called Bernie Broke My Heart, but Dr. Jill Stein Heals the Wound. I think just going through that, you can see where Jill Stein and the Green Party align extraordinarily well with Bernie Sanders' policies and platform. 
And next up is a piece from Inquisitor at Inquisitor.com. And this is by Patricia Ramirez. Bernie Sanders and his ardent supporters just got an apology from the Democratic National Committee regarding the WikiLeaks email scandal that recently rocked the organization. The FBI is currently investigating the circumstances that led to the hack of the DNC and resulted in a dump of thousands of private emails, many of which focused on the DNC's oppression of Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders over the course of his presidential campaign. For months now, Bernie Sanders and his loyal supporters have claimed that the DNC not only blatantly favored Hillary Clinton as the party's nominee, but that they were taking steps to promote the former Secretary of State and to increase her chances of a primary victory over Bernie Sanders. The follow-up from the DNC email scandal has been widespread, and it couldn't have come at a worse time for the Democratic Party. The dump of the hacked private emails came over the weekend leading up to the Democratic National Convention, and the information contained in the emails has put a huge damper on unity efforts between Bernie Sanders, his supporters, and the mainstream Democratic Party. The DNC's public apology to Bernie Sanders and his supporters came on Monday, the first day of the Democratic National Convention. The DNC called some of the remarks made about Bernie Sanders in the leaked emails inexcusable. Quote, on behalf of everyone at the DNC, I'll bet not everyone, we want to offer a deep and sincere apology to Senator Sanders, his supporters, and the entire Democratic Party for the inexcusable remarks made over email. These comments do not reflect the values of the DNC or our steadfast commitment to neutrality during the nominating process. The DNC does not and will not tolerate disrespectful language exhibited toward our candidates. But the DNC clearly did tolerate disrespectful language exhibited towards Bernie Sanders. Probably certainly would not have tolerated similar language or similar discussions if they were targeting Hillary Clinton. So, um... You know, thanks, but no thanks. You can't uh, you can't attack our candidate and say we don't believe in attacking your candidate. We don't believe in diminishing your candidate's opportunity to fight a fair fight with the other candidate in the race, um, and say you know. On one hand, say, leaders of this organization, the DNC, do not want this candidate to succeed. And then say, but our organization does not tolerate that kind of language. Doesn't work. I am not sold. And here is some more commentary on that piece. This is from the Chicago Tribune. And this is by Darlene Glanton. It's D-A-H-L-E-E-N Glanton. Bernie Sanders supporters have a right to be angry. The leaked emails from the DNC apparently confirmed what they have said all along, that the political system was rigged against their candidate in favor of Hillary Clinton. 
Top Democrats essentially dismissed Sanders as a viable candidate during the primaries, attempted to undermine him with voters, and even took steps to derail his campaign, according to hacked emails that were recently made public. In doing so, Democrats tarnished the electoral process and alienated a large constituency of voters that they will need to help lift Clinton to victory in November. In other words, the Democrats created a mess, and they are turning to Sanders, the very one they betrayed, to come in and clean it up. Sanders dutifully took the stage on opening night of the Democratic National Convention on Monday in Philadelphia, and in effect told his supporters not to harbor any ill feelings over being stabbed in the back. He warned them against getting sidetracked and urged them to keep their eyes on the bigger issue, defeating Republican challenger Donald Trump in November. If this were a typical presidential election, Democrats would pout for a day or two and then join hands for a partisan rendition of Kumbaya. But there's nothing ordinary about this year's race. Voters are splintered over ideology and they have made a steadfast and they've made steadfast decisions about whether to fall in line behind establishment candidates or take a chance with someone who refused to toe the party line. Long before the primaries ended, Clinton had tried to open the door to Sanders supporters. Recently, Sanders even reached out and gave them his okay to switch sides. But just as some were about to take their first cautious step, the DNC walked up and slammed the door shut. Many of Sanders supporters are millennials, 18 to 29-year-olds, who are dipping their feet into the political cesspool for the first time. For the most part, they are idealistic dreamers who believe that things such as basic health insurance and free college education are rights for all Americans. Though vocal and demanding, they are in some ways fickle and vulnerable. They aren't timid about saying what they want, but no one is sure whether they can be counted on to show up at the polls. Four years ago, Barack Obama won 60% of their vote in his re-election. That was 6% fewer then voted for him in 2008. Still, it's a group that neither Clinton nor the Democratic Party can afford to alienate, and in betraying Sanders, the DNC also betrayed them. The Democrats' dirty laundry couldn't have been pulled out of the hamper at a worse time. They were just about to step on the stage in Philadelphia and try to prove to the country that they are more civilized than the Republicans whom America witnessed last week in Cleveland. Instead, the email controversy has contributed to suspicion and mistrust many voters had already had toward Clinton. The good news, though, is they dislike Trump even more. It's sad when that's the good news. It's sad when the Democratic Party, the DNC, can be complacent about anyone's vote because the Republicans have put forward a candidate that is so disagreeable in so many ways. It's unlikely that Sanders supporters will switch courses and go all the way over to the other side, but this is a sort of thing that could make some voters stay home in November. This year, with so many American values at stake, voters cannot afford to allow disappointment and anger to cloud their view. 
Sanders supporters should be proud of what they accomplished in the primaries. With their support, Sanders was able to push Democrats to adopt the most progressive platform in recent history. Democrats have a firm commitment to increasing the minimum wage to at least $15 an hour. They will fight to close the private detention centers that profit from mass deportations of people in the in the country without legal permission, and the party is calling for an end to mass incarceration and racial profiling. And I think all these things are great, and I think all these things are miles ahead of the Republican Party platform and policies. But I don't trust in the leadership of the Democratic Party and the party insiders to truly fight for these things. There is more in this particular article. Um, It goes on, but as you can see, it's really starting to lean on the argument that despite the DNC stabbing Bernie Sanders in the back and ensuring that the already most likely to win candidate was even more likely to win. Despite all that, despite putting forward a candidate who is not a strong progressive, the DNC is counting on the supporters of Bernie Sanders to recognize that the Republican candidate is far worse, that the the presidency of the Republican candidate would be worse for us than a Hillary Clinton presidency. I think that's true, but I still don't think that means that a Hillary Clinton presidency will be good for us. As I've said before, a lot of that comes from the previous Clinton presidency. All of the major groundbreaking, so to speak, um, legislation that passed under Bill Clinton held us back. It held us in place. It was don't ask, don't tell. It was defensive marriage act. It was welfare reform. It was the, whatever they called the imprison all of the population of America act. Um, it was Republican legislation. It was Republican legislation that a Republican president would have a very hard time getting passed. But a Democratic president uh, managed to get past the Congress because the Democrats wouldn't stand up and oppose it the way they would if the president was a Republican. So I, I don't, I don't fear a Hillary Clinton presidency as much as I fear a Donald Trump presidency. But I don't think Hillary Clinton presidency is right for our country. I don't think it gets us where we need to go. And on to the next piece. This piece from USA Today by Amr Madhani and Kevin Johnson. Bernie Sanders vanquished presumptive Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton. Sorry, missed that little comment there. Bernie Sanders vanquished 
too bad. I wish that comma wasn't there. Anyway, Bernie Sanders vanquished. Presumptive Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton faces new competition as she tries to win over some of the most passionate backers of the Vermont Senator's campaign. Green Party candidate Jill Stein. Hundreds of pro-Sanders demonstrators marched through Center City on the first day of the Democratic National Convention on Monday, chanting, Bernie or Jill, no Hill, raising fresh questions about whether Clinton will face a bleed of Sanders' most devoted backers if they bail on the Democratic Party and back the presumptive Green Party nominee. Hundreds more showed up to hear Stein address demonstrators at FDR Park near the Wells Fargo Center, where this week's Democratic convention took place. In her, dress, her, in her address at the Monday evening rally, Stein, a physician from Massachusetts and longtime Green Party activist, accused the Democratic National Committee of sabotaging the Sanders campaign. A reference to the thousands of emails leaked last week that showed senior members at the committee sought to undercut Sanders' campaign. Quote, We are leaving behind the corruption, the backstabbing, and the lies, Stein told the protesters. They have said, that bad, they have said bad things about Bernie and have apologized. They have said much more than bad things. They sabotaged a revolutionary campaign. Stein won just 470,000 votes nationally as the Green Party's 2012 presidential nominee, but many diehard Sanders supporters who came to Philadelphia to protest this week's convention say they'll shift their support to Stein unless Sanders disavows the endorsement he gave to Clinton after it became clear he would fall short of winning the Democratic nomination. In Philadelphia on Monday, Sanders again reiterated that the party must support Clinton in November to defeat the Republican nominee. But on the streets of Philadelphia, where thousands of self-described burners have descended this week to express their frustration with the Democratic Party, the idea of throwing their support to Clinton is a non-starter. Some in the Bernie or Bus crowd suggest that the idea of Hillary Clinton presidency is as unpalatable, perhaps even more so, than the idea of a Donald Trump presidency. A CNC-ORC poll published Monday suggests the presence of Stein and Libertarian candidate Johnson in the race could have potential ramifications on the outcome. The poll, which was conducted over the weekend after Trump accepted the GOP nomination at the Republican convention showed Trump leading Clinton nationally 44% to 39%, with Johnson taking 9% of the vote and Stein taking 3%. The last time the Green Party had a significant impact on a presidential race was in 2000 when Ralph Nader drew 2.9 million votes nationally and faced blame for playing the role of the spoiler who helped deliver Florida to George W. Bush in his race against Vice President Al Gore. This time around, the Green Party is aiming to get on the ballot in all 50 states. Jim Cavanaugh, a Sanders supporter who said he will vote for Stein, pushed back against the notion from Democrats that a vote for Stein was a spoiler vote. He said he would not vote out of fear. Quote, the common assumption is that she's the lesser of two evils, and I think she is very evil, said Kavanaugh of the 
of Norristown, Pennsylvania, who is critical of her foreign policy and environmental records. Trump is a wild card. We know the evil she is. Cornell West, the activist and professor who supported Sanders in the primaries earlier this month, offered perhaps the highest profile endorsement of Stein, calling her the only progressive woman in the race. West served on the Democratic National Convention Platform Committee, but skipped the final voting in protest. West, who attended Stein's rally on Monday, said in an interview that the Democratic Party had become a, quote, corporately dominated organization that is at risk of losing many Sanders supporters to the Green Party. Big money is running things, West said. Gail Madeira of New York took part in Monday's rally holding a sign that read, Never Hillary, and I will not vote for lies and security breaches. In the past, Madeira said she has always backed Democratic candidates, but in November, she plans to cast her ballot for Stein. Both Hillary and Trump, to me, are equally bad, Madeira said. The Democratic platform is better, but the Democratic platform is not binding. And Hillary, as we have seen by her record, is a compulsive liar, and she is going to do whatever she wants to. Other Sanders supporters said they still feel passionately about the Vermont senator, but they could not follow his call to back Clinton. And another viewpoint on the same subject. This is by actor Will Wheaton at willwheaton.net. A couple of questions have come to my Tumblr ask thingy recently. If you're interested in what I'm thinking about the election, keep reading. If not, please enjoy this picture I took of the clock in my kitchen. About Tim Kaine as Hillary Clinton's VP pick. I wanted someone more liberal and someone who was more unambiguously anti-war. But that's who I wanted at the top of the ticket, and I didn't get that either. I don't know too much about him, but people I know and trust who do know lots about him, even Sanders supporters, think he's a good choice. Ultimately, it just doesn't matter to me. The reality of this election is that we can choose between a disappointing Democrat and the end of the world. Unless you're in a deep, deep, deep blue or deep, deep red state, voting for a third party is irresponsible this time around, given the stakes for the election, in my opinion. Younger me would have argued fiercely against that. Younger me voted for Nader, and look how that turned out. What's really, really, really important is that Democrats take back the Senate so people like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and Sherrod Brown and Al Franken are in leadership positions. We need to get as many strong progressives in Congress and in our state and local governments as we can to ensure that Clinton's neocon foreign policy instincts and fealty to Wall Street are held in check as much as possible. It's really important to get as much of the House back as possible, to neuter the Tea Party and force whatever is left of traditional Republicans, like the non-insane ones who aren't in the Trump or Cruz wing of the party, to compromise and actually get shit done. 
Most important of all, Trump has to be defeated in, a, in an historical landslide. He needs to be humiliated and he needs to take as much of his party down with him as possible. I remember in 2004 how shitty I thought Kerry was and what a terrible candidate he was. But I remember feeling like America needed to show the world and ourselves that Bush was an anomaly, that Bush was installed by SCOTUS and Supreme Court of the United States. And when we were given a choice, we rejected him. It was really, really bad when America basically reaffirmed that the Bush-Cheney reign of terror was A-OK with us. And I believe it's one of the reasons, if not the reason, that not a single person was ever held accountable for the Iraq war lies. So we have another chance this year, and we have to loudly and unambiguously say that we, the people, totally reject the fascist, nativist, white, nationalist cult of personality that is Donald Trump. So Cain is safe. Kane is boring. Kane says that Hillary Clinton takes the votes of the liberal wing of the party for granted. Kane says that the Clintons are stuck in the 90s and always will be. And all of that is disappointing to me. But ultimately, doesn't matter because the stakes in this election are as high as they've ever been. If Trump is elected, America will never recover. We can't allow that to happen. And voting for Hillary Clinton and Tim Kane is the best way to do that. I've made it really clear that Bernie Sanders is who I wanted for my president, and I did what I could to make that happen. But he didn't get the nomination, and now my realistic choice is between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. I think Michael Moore is right about Hillary not exciting young people the way President Obama did and does. It's now our job to help everyone who is upset and disappointed and thinking about staying home to realize that we're, not, that we're going to need every single vote we can get to defeat and utterly demolish and humiliate Donald Trump and everything he stands for. I don't like that Clinton is a warmonger. I don't like that she's too close to Wall Street. I don't like that she and her campaign were condescending and dismissive of millennials during the primaries. But none of that changes the reality we are facing. It's Clinton or Trump. I understand that younger voters don't remember the 2000 elections when SCOTUS installed Bush. And I understand that younger voters who were in elementary school during his disastrous presidency were effectively insulated from it because they were kids. I was exactly that kid in 2000 when I voted for Nader because Bush was an asshole and Gore was a terrible candidate. But if I could get my vote back now, I'd build the time machine with my own hands. Think of the millions of people who have died because of Bush. Think of the destruction of our climate that is now a total crisis. Because Bush and his administration did nothing to address it. Think of how much horrible debt college students have because Bush put people who just wanted to take their money away from them into positions of power. Think about the militarization of our police, which began under Bush. President Obama did everything he could to roll back the damage Bush and Cheney did to our country and the world, and we aren't even halfway to where we need to be. I don't know how much President Clinton will work to continue rolling it back, but even if she keeps it in the same place, that's better for our country and the world than what will happen under a President Trump. If you, like me, wanted Bernie Sanders to be our president, if you, like me, believe in his revolution— 
If you, like me, believe that we have to make America work for the 99%, then your choice in this election is Hillary Clinton. She's not perfect. She's not my first choice or even in my top five choices. But she is the choice I have if I want to protect my country and my children from Donald Trump. So that's why, even though I still feel the burn, I'm with her. And as I said, I don't agree necessarily with that sentiment. It's certainly not the way I'm going to invest my political power in the November election, but it is a understandable viewpoint. And I think that piece laid it out fairly well for people who are inclined uh, to go in that direction. Up next, a piece from Salon by Andrew O'Hare. It's O-H-E-H-I-R. It's actually O apostrophe H-E. H-I-R. In defense of Bernie's boo birds, sort of, Democratic dissent is not the party's real problem. If a few scattered outbreaks of booing by diehard Bernie Sanders supporters on the convention floor is the worst thing that happens to the Democratic Party in 2016, things will have gone very well indeed. That's already not the worst thing by a long shot. As things stand, the party is stuck running a widely disliked mainstream politician for president in a year of widespread and often incoherent populist outrage against an opponent who is more like a human-sized sack of hornets than an actual human being. Much of the democratic angst of the moment is fueled by a sense of weakness and the fear of having been wrong-footed by history. So much has gone south already, and it could get worse. All the outrage and pearl-clutching and condescension being directed on Monday night and Tuesday morning at a small group of disappointed Sanders fans, many of them younger folks who are brand new to party politics and whom the Democratic Party desperately needs, is grotesquely exaggerated. This is what democracy looks like, people. Deal with it. The Democratic brand, to use obnoxious contemporary parlance, is so fragile that Hillary Clinton's prospects of victory over the most cartoonish and least qualified candidate in history can be damaged by a little booing? Then the entire party is in deep trouble. That is the not-so-hidden meaning of this convention so far, as Robert Reich pointed out on Monday. Reich, who served in Bill Clinton's cabinet and has known both Clintons since all three were in law school, were law school classmates, suggests that Hillary still hasn't grasped the nature of the sudden political realignment of 2016. Quote, the most powerful force in American politics today is anti-establishment fury directed at corporate and political elites, Reich writes. Quote, they are no longer moderates. There's no longer a center. The viable choices are between authoritarian populism, meaning the Trump strain, and the democratic populism embodied by Sanders. We can see what happened to the Republican establishment that tried to battle this tide. As I argued months ago, 
the democratic establishment is not all that far behind. So this abrupt turn towards shaming internal dissenters and this insistence that a false front of ideological unity is the only path to victory is a sign of intense weakness and unease. As with the hilariously sudden banishment of party chair Debbie Wasserman Schultz, whose name and signature appears on credentials worn by every convention attendee, but who is nowhere to be seen, the quasi-Soviet conformity belies much of the Democratic happy talk of day one in Philadelphia. Michelle Obama, for instance, delivered a beautiful speech loaded with soaring sentiment and heartfelt principle, one which seemed to describe some other universe where, if not for Republican bile and bigotry, things would be wonderful. So a hardcore handful of Sanders supporters, not even close to a majority of his delegates, in my judgment, booed several times at the mention of a candidate they don't like and don't trust, and whom they have spent months viewing as an implacable enemy. Seriously, BFD. Was that the best possible optics for a party convention? No, but neither is, quote, get off my lawn and go get a haircut or an endless series of chicken little tweets about how an intemperate handful of Bernie loyalists will bring down civilization. You would think that Democrats have had their institutional memory wiped and have forgotten what this party used to be like before it was remade by Hillary Clinton's husband in the Democratic Leadership Council and their Wall Street backers. Because they have. I'm old enough to have dim memories of sitting on the couch next to my dad and watching wiggly black and white images of the vicious floor fights of the 1972 Democratic Convention in Miami Beach, where party regulars fought into the roll, fought into the roll call in a last-ditch effort to defeat George McGovern. Four years later, the same thing happened in reverse as an establishment liberals tried to derail the insurgent candidacy of a southern moderate outsider named Jimmy Carter. Another four years after that, in 1980, Ted Kennedy waged a nearly unprecedented struggle against Carter, an incumbent Democratic president. That went all the way to Madison Square Garden. Kennedy only endorsed Carter late and begrudgingly, giving a fiery convention speech that only mentioned the party's actual nominee once. Bernie Sanders has already done far more to support Hillary Clinton than Kennedy ever did in that campaign. campaign. Was there booing at those conventions and name-calling and vitriol and threats to stay home or bolt to the other party and prognostications of electoral doom? You bet your ass there was all day long. Every commentator at every one of those conventions hauled out the Will Rogers line about how he didn't belong to any organized political party because he was a Democrat. The wounds more or less healed and life went on. Now I can see you raising your hand in the back to remind me that the doomsayers were right, at least in 72 and 80, and before that too in the disastrous implosion of Chicago in 68. It's a worthwhile point, and there's no question that those experiences left the party permanently scarred. It sure would have been interesting to see Kennedy run against Ronald Reagan, although I doubt the results would have been different.
And this piece from The New Yorker by Margaret Talbot. Bernie Sanders' most admirable characteristic came to the fore last night, and it should not have surprised his most insistent supporters, some of whom chanted Bernie so long and so loudly when he took the stage in Philadelphia, that you wondered whether they'd allow the man himself to speak. In fact, his integrity should make them proud. Sanders is the rare politician who is not a schmoozer or a pleaser or a prevaricator. Throughout this campaign, and indeed throughout his career, he has said what he meant and stuck to it. And all along in the presidential contest, he has said that he would not be a spoiler. As he put it last July in an interview aired on C-SPAN, when he was asked whether he would ever run as a third-party candidate, quote, I made the promise that I would not, and I will keep that promise. And the reason for that is I do not want to be responsible for electing some right-wing Republican to be president of the United States. Sanders has kept that promise in letter and in spirit by endorsing Hillary Clinton. He's doing what he said he'd do and saying why. Quote, Think about the Supreme Court justices that Donald Trump would nominate and what that would mean to civil liberties, equal rights, and the future of our country, Sanders said. He does not want to turn over the country to a racist demagogue who would ir irreparably damage it when there is a candidate who agrees with him on many, if not all, issues and who is temperamentally and intellectually capable of doing the job. Watching Sanders' speech last night, which my colleague John Cassidy also wrote about, I thought about the interview I did with Sanders last July for my profile of him. It was early in the Sanders movement, and he was still amazed in a low-key Sanders way by the crowds that he attracted. Thanks to all the speeches he'd been giving, he was hoarse and nursing a cough from a summer cold. Sanders doesn't have high regard for the profile genre or the media in general and he didn't relish talking about his upbringing or how he'd come to his core beliefs. But when I asked him how he decided to run for president, he gave a long and forthcoming answer, which showed that his sense of what his campaign was about was both realistic and idealistic. Quote, I thought about it for a long time. Number one, most importantly for me, it was not ego. You're not look you're looking at a guy who ran for statewide office and got one percent of the vote. So losing per se is not something that I worried about. But Sanders continued, it was important to me to know that I could run a good campaign in which I carried the banner and carried the ideas that meant a lot to millions of people. So it wasn't about losing personally or not doing well. It was about carrying the banner for family and medical leave for a massive jobs program, for climate change, for campaign finance. Sanders was concerned that if his campaign did not have some success, quote, you'd have some people saying, oh, Bernie Sanders talked about campaign finance reform and overturning Citizens United, and he got 2% of the vote. I guess that's not a serious issue. You understand what I'm saying? So I wanted to do it well, and I had to determine that I could. 
He did do it well. As he emphasized last night, Sanders and his movement helped produce a much more progressive platform than Clinton alone would have. More important, he may have energized a grassroots movement that could reduce the influence of corporate money in American politics and keep issues like the minimum wage, affordable college, and some inequal- and income inequality alive. That's something he said all along, too, that no president, no matter how well-intentioned or progressive, can make any real change without the moral and pragmatic pressure of a grassroots movement. And he said it again last night, because Sanders is nothing if not consistent. Quote, Election days come and go, but the struggle of the people to create a government which represents all of us and not just the 1%, that struggle continues. And speaking of the 1%, this next piece is from Truth Dig, and it is by Chris Hedges. It is called The 1% Useful Idiots. The parade of useful idiots, the bankrupt liberal class that long ago sold its soul to corporate power, is now led by Bernie, by Senator Bernie Sanders. His final capitulation symbolized by his pathetic motion to suspend the roll call, giving Hillary Clinton the Democratic nomination by acclamation, is an abject betrayal of millions of his supporters in his call for a political revolution. No doubt the Democrats will continue to let Sanders be a member of the Democratic caucus. No doubt the Democrats will continue to agree not to run a serious candidate against him in Vermont. No doubt Sanders will be given ample platform and media opportunities to shill for Clinton and the corporate machine. No doubt he will remain a member of the political establishment. Sanders squandered his most important historical moment. He had a chance, one chance, to take the energy, anger, and momentum, walk out the doors of the Wells Fargo Center and into the streets to help build a third-party movement. His call to his delegates to face reality and support Clinton was an insulting repudiation of the reality his supporters, mostly young men and young women, had overcome by lifting him from an obscure candidate polling at 12% into a serious contender for the nomination. Sanders not only sold out his base, he mocked it. This was a spiritual wound, not a political one. For this, he must ask forgiveness. Whatever resistance happens will happen without him. Whatever political revolution happens will happen without him. Whatever hope we have for a sustainable future will happen without him. Sanders, who once lifted up the yearnings of millions, has become an impediment to change. He took his 30 pieces of silver and joined with a bankrupt liberal establishment on behalf of a candidate who was a tool of Wall Street, a proponent of endless war and an enemy of the working class. Sanders, like all of the self-identified liberals who are whoring themselves out for Democrats, will use fear as a primary reason to remain enslaved by the neoliberal assault. And in return, the corporate state will allow him and other useful idiots among the 1% to have their careers and construct pathetic monuments to themselves. The Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, will be pushed through whether Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton is president. 
The fracking industry, fossil fuel industry, and animal agriculture industry will ravage the ecosystem, whether Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton is president. The predatory financial institutions on Wall Street will trash the economy and loot the U.S. Treasury on the way to another economic collapse, whether Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton is president. Poor unarmed people of color will be gunned down in the streets of our cities, whether Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton is president. The system of neo-slavery in our prisons, where we keep poor men and poor women of color in cages because we have taken from them the possibility of employment, education, and dignity, will be maintained whether Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton is president. Millions of undocumented people will be deported whether Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton is president. Austerity programs will cut or abolish public services, further decay the infrastructure, and curtail social programs, whether Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton is president. Money will replace the vote, whether Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton is president. And half the country, which now lives in poverty, will remain in misery, whether Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton becomes president. This is not speculation. We know this because there has been total continuity on every issue from trade agreements to war to mass deportations between the Bush administration and the administration of Barack Obama. The problem is not Donald Trump. The problem is capitalism. And this is the beast we are called to fight and slay. Until that is done, nothing of substance will change. To reduce the political debate, as Sanders and others are doing, to political personalities, is political infantilism. We have undergone a corporate coup. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton will not reverse this coup. They, like Barack Obama, know where the centers of power lie. They serve these centers of power. Change will come when we have the tenacity, as many Sanders delegates did, to refuse to cooperate, to say no, to no longer participate in the political charade. Change will come when we begin acts of sustained mass civil disobedience. Change will come when the fear the corporate state uses to paralyze us is used by us to paralyze the corporate state. The Russian writer Alexander Herzen, speaking a century ago to a group of anarchists about how to overthrow the Tsar, reminded his listeners that it was not their job to save a dying system, but to replace it. Quote, we think we are the doctors. We are the disease. We are here not to reform the system, we are here to overthrow it, and that is the only possibility left to restore our democracy and save our planet. If we fail in this task, if this system of corporate capitalism and globalization is not dismantled, we are doomed. And this is the reality no one wants to speak about. We will have to be in the political wilderness, perhaps for a decade, but a decade ago, Syriza, the party now ruling Greece, was polling at only 4%. This is what the Green Party is polling today. We will not bring about systemic change in one or two election cycles, but we can begin to build a counterweight to the corporate state. We can begin to push back. 
We must find the courage not to be afraid. We must find the courage to follow our conscience. We must find the courage to defy the corporate forces of death in order to affirm the forces of life. This will not be easy. The corporate state, once its vast systems of indoctrination and propaganda, do not work to keep us passive. Once we are no longer afraid, once we make our own reality, rather than accommodating ourselves to the reality imposed upon us, we'll employ more direct and coercive forms of control. The reign of terror, the revocation of civil liberties, the indiscriminate violence by the state will no longer be exercised only against poor people of color. The reality endured by our poor sisters and brothers of color, a reality we did not do enough to fight against, will become our own. To allow the ideological forces of neoliberalism to crush our ideals and our values is to fall into a deadly cynicism and despair. To allow the consumer culture and the cult of the self, which lies at the heart of capitalism, to seduce us is to kill our souls. Happiness does not come with the accumulation of wealth. Happiness does not come from possessions or power. These are narcotics. They numb and kill all that is noble and good within us. Happiness comes when you reach out in solidarity to your neighbor, when you lend your hand to the stranger or the outcast, when you are willing to lose your life to save it. Happiness comes when you have the capacity to love. Our span of life and the vastness of the universe is insignificant. Albert Camus wrote, quote, One of the only coherent philosophical positions is revolt. It is a constant confrontation between human beings and their obscurity. It is not aspiration, for it is devoid of hope. That revolt is the certainty of a crushing fate without the resignation that ought to accompany it. He said further, a living person can be enslaved and reduced to the historic condition of an object. But if he or she dies in refusing to be enslaved, he or she reaffirms the existence of another kind of human nature, which refuses to be classified as an object. There is only one way to rebel. You fight for all the oppressed or none of the oppressed. You understand that there is no country. Our country is the earth. We are citizens of the world. Nationalism is a disease. It is a disease we must purge. As long as a Muslim family suffers in a refugee camp in Syria, or an LGBT person suffers from the bigotry imposed by the Christian heretics in the Christian right, we all suffer. There are desperate single mothers struggling to raise children on less than $10,000 a year in some Philadelphia neighborhoods. Many of these children go to bed hungry. There are unemployed workers desperate to find a job and restore their dignity. There are mentally ill and homeless we have abandoned to the streets. There are Iraqi and Afghan families living in terror, a terror we have inflicted on them, in the futile and endless wars waged to enrich the arms industry. There are men and women being tortured in our worldwide archipelago of secret detention centers. There are undocumented workers whose families we have ripped apart, separating children from parents. This is reality. It is the only reality that matters. It is a reality we must and will change. Because, as the great socialist Eugene V. Debs 
who, upon being sentenced in 1918 for violating the Sedition Act by defying the madness of World War I, said, quote, I recognized my kinship with all living beings. I made up my mind that I was not one bit better in the mean, than the meanest man on earth. I said then, and I say now, that while there is a lower class, I am in it. And while there is a criminal element, I am of it. And while there is a soul in prison, I am not free. The fight will be hard and difficult. It will require love and self-sacrifice. It will require anger and courage. It is the greatest moral imperative before us. Those who do not defy the evil become its accomplice. We may not succeed, but we must be among those of whom future generations will say, they tried, they dared to dream, they dared to care, they dared to love. They enabled those who followed to press on in the struggle. And just yesterday, a number of organizations that are part of and supporters of the Black Lives Matter movement put together and endorsed a platform for that movement. And this is a, in my mind, a pretty significant step um, taken by these groups um, the Black Lives Matter movement has been a very loose organization without direct leadership um, in the national sense. And, and as I read somewhere, and I prefer it as the reality, um, you know, there are not a small group of leaders. There are a large number of leaders of the organization which makes it more nebulous and more have many more independent segments um, than the organization of a lot of other types of groups. But a number of these groups came together and wrote and endorsed this platform. Black Humanity and Dignity requires black political will and power. Despite constant exploitation and perpetual oppression, black people have bravely and brilliantly been the driving force pushing the U.S. towards the ideals it articulates, but has never achieved. In recent years, we have taken to the streets, launched massive campaigns, and impacted elections. But our elected leaders have failed to address the legitimate demands of our movement. We can no longer wait. In response to the sustained and increasingly visible violence against black communities in the U.S. and globally, a collective of more than 50 organizations representing thousands of black people from across the country have come together with renewed energy and purpose to articulate a common vision and agenda. We are a collective that centers and is rooted in black communities, but we recognize we have a shared struggle with all oppressed people. Collective liberation will be a product of all of our work. We believe in elevating the experiences and leadership 
of the most marginalized black people, including but not limited to those who are women, queer, trans, femmes, gender nonconforming, Muslim, formerly and currently incarcerated, cash poor, and working class, differently abled, undocumented, and immigrant. We are intentional about amplifying the particular experience of state and gendered violence that black, queer, trans, gender nonconforming women and intersex people face. There can be no liberation for all black people if we do not center and fight for those who have been marginalized. It is our hope that by working together to create and amplify a shared agenda, we can continue to move towards a world in which the full humanity and dignity of all people is recognized. While this platform is focused on domestic policies, we know that patriarchy, exploitive capitalism, militarism, and white supremacy know no borders. We stand in solidarity with our international family against the ravages of global capitalism and anti-black racism, human-made climate change, war, and exploitation. We also stand with descendants of African people all over the world in an ongoing call and struggle for reparations for the historic and continuing harms of colonialism and slavery. We also recognize and honor the rights and struggle of our indigenous family for land and self-determination. We've created this platform to articulate and support the ambitions and work of black people. We also seek to intervene in the current political climate and assert a clear vision, particularly for those who claim to be our allies, of the world we want them to help us create. We reject false solutions and believe we can achieve a complete transformation of the current systems, which place profit over people and make it impossible for many of us to breathe. Together, we demand an end to the wars against black people. We demand that the government repair the harms that have been done to black communities in the form of reparations and targeted long-term investments. We also demand a defunding of the systems and institutions that criminalize and cage us. This document articulates our vision of a fundamentally different world. However, we recognize the need to include policies that address the immediate suffering of black people. These policies, while less transformational, are necessary to address the current material conditions of our people and will better equip us to win the world we demand and deserve. We recognize that not all of our collective needs and visions can be translated into policy, but we understand that policy change is one of many tactics necessary to move us towards the world we envision. We have come together now because we believe it is time to forge a new covenant. We are dreamers and doers, and this platform is meant to articulate some of our vision. The policy briefs elevate the brave and transformative work our people are already engaged in and build on some of the best thinking in our history of struggle. This agenda continues the legacy of our ancestors who pushed for reparations, black self-determination, and community control, and also propels new iterations of movements such as efforts for reproductive justice, holistic healing, and reconciliation, and ending violence 
against black, cis, queer, and trans people. And there are a whole number on this site of specific topics in which the demands are explained in more detail. And you can actually go on the site and endorse the platform. Um, so this is from the Movement for Black Lives. And... Let me see if that is the exact name of the website. So you can go to policy.m4bl.org. And that M4BL is Movement for Black Lives. And that will take you right to the platform page there. There's a lot of uh, additional sections of the website where you can join, you can take action, you can download information or find out more information about the Movement for Black Lives. So... That's a very strong, unified statement um, about where and why it's important for us to come together and fight for the kind of society and the kind of world that is supportive and beneficial to all people. And that will wrap up this episode of Bernie 2016. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. If you want to find out more, check out the website at Bernie-2016.com where you can listen to previous episodes. And going out this episode, we will listen to the song Enough is Enough by A2 Brute and that is E-T the number 2 B-R-U-T-E you can find that on YouTube thanks for listening
induction. Illogical inductions and false remedies. I've had enough of lobbyist contributions. Violation of the Constitution for our security. I've had enough of mass incarceration all across the nation. Lost Wall Street keeps I've had enough of social fire reductions. No infrastructure. 